I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to an all-new mini episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today's mini episode is going to be a repeat of something I've done two other times. Yes. Today, I've got another batch of random clippings for you. Quite often, when I'm preparing for the full episodes each week, I come across short articles that aren't big enough to be additional history stories, but for whatever reason, they intrigue me, usually because they're funny or shocking. I started clipping these little articles and keeping them in a file, and sometimes I pull some out to share with you. Today is one of those days. So, without further ado, Let's check out the first random clipping of the day. It comes from the Kansas City Star out of Kansas City, Missouri. It was printed on the 20th of January, 1961. That was the same day as President John F. Kennedy's inauguration, and this story is about him. Sort of. It's actually about a neighbor of President Kennedy. Her name was Helen Montgomery, and she lived across the street from his home in Georgetown with her 86-year-old father. As I'm sure you can imagine, President Kennedy's home was a constant hive of activity during the election and the days leading up to his inauguration. Hordes of reporters camped outside his home. They didn't go too far in case he made some big announcement or went somewhere important. During the winter months, it got really cold outside, and was pretty miserable for all of those reporters. Helen Montgomery opened her home to all those reporters and would let them wait out the president from the comfort of her living room. She offered them warm coffee and crackers and cookies and welcomed them all as if they were old friends. Most surprising to me was the fact that Helen even let the reporters install telephones in her living room so they could conduct their business there. This wasn't just a place to get warm. It was, for all intents and purposes, a newsroom. Helen and her father did it all out of the goodness of their hearts. They saw a need, knew that they had a way to fulfill the need, and they stepped in. Eventually, word got back to John F. Kennedy himself about Helen Montgomery's kindness, and one day after Mass, he stopped by her home. He signed her guestbook and asked to be shown around. He wanted to know where she'd been keeping all the reporters. He then surprised her with a plaque. She teared up when he told her it was from all the newsmen to show their appreciation of her. They asked Kennedy if he would personally deliver it to her. The inscription on the plaque said, In the cold winter of 1960-61, this house had an important role in history. From it was flashed to the world news of pre-inaugural announcements by President John F. Kennedy presented by the grateful newsmen who were given warm haven here by Miss Helen Montgomery and her father, Charles Montgomery. For my second random clipping today, I'm taking an article from the Lake Geneva Herald out of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. This article was printed on October 1st, 1892. The headline says, The Merry Texan's Way. First, let's set the scene for this article. It's the 1800s in Texas, and things are still a bit, shall we say, Wild West. 
This article says that six cowboys took over a southbound train about 40 miles north of San Antonio. The men had boarded the train at Buddha Station and immediately took over. Now, typically, when a bunch of cowboys take over a train, there's one thing on their mind, right? It's money. They usually hold the passengers at gunpoint while making them empty their wallets and purses. They take the fancy jewelry from everyone, and they search the train for a safe or other valuable items. At least, that's how it's always done in the movies and in books. These six cowboys were different, though. Their first act when they got on the train was to single out a man who was wearing a red cravat and a tall silk hat. The man was a drummer from Chicago, and apparently they didn't like the way he was dressed because they immediately forced him off the train. The article doesn't say how fast the train was going, or if it was even moving at all at that point, but for the drummer's sake, we'll hope he wasn't injured when he got kicked off. The next thing these cowboys did was round up a bunch of the young ladies on the train, and they held them at gunpoint. But again, this wasn't a normal train robbery. Instead of asking for jewelry, or worse, from the young ladies, the men forced them to sing. The cowboys' antics continued for 20 miles before they suddenly departed the train at a way station. As far as I know, though the article doesn't actually say, the men didn't take a single thing from anyone. Either way, I'm sure it was definitely a memorable journey for anyone who happened to be on board that day. This next story isn't funny, and it's kind of sad, but I found it interesting, so I'm sharing it with you. This story comes from the Trenton Evening Times out of Trenton, New Jersey, printed on August 14, 1914. The headline says, Badly Injured in Plunge Down Elevator Shaft. In this story, a man by the name of Peter D. Sharp fell down an elevator shaft, just like the headline implies. Now, he wasn't pushed, and the elevator didn't malfunction and crash to the ground but rather it seemed to be user error. Mr. Sharp worked at the Trenton Brass and Machine Shop. His job with the company was to run their elevator. Back then, it took more effort to run one than just hopping in and pushing the floor number you wanted to reach. The day of the incident, Mr. Sharp took the elevator up to one of the upper floors, and then for whatever reason, he got off it for a minute. But the elevator continued to run. It went all the way to the top of the building, without anyone actually riding on it. However, poor Mr. Sharp didn't realize what had happened until it was too late. He went to step back onto the elevator, as he always did, except it wasn't there, and instead, he stepped into the giant, gaping hole of the elevator shaft. His body fell 30 feet before coming to a stop on the ground below. Luckily, some of the other men working in the building saw him fall and ran to find him. They found Mr. Sharp in the cellar. He was unconscious, and at the time the article was written, they were still waiting for him to wake up. The article reported that he had a broken leg, lacerations on his head, and internal injuries. I tried to find an update on Mr. Sharp in later newspapers, but there wasn't anything. Hopefully that's a good sign that he survived his plunge down the elevator shaft. This next story was printed in the Daily News out of New York, even though the incident actually happened in Memphis, Tennessee. It's very short, just one paragraph, but it made me laugh. 
The headline simply says, Pocket Change. Apparently, an 18-year-old teenager named Brandon Hughes was in court because of a traffic offense. He'd been caught driving on a suspended license, and he'd failed to register his vehicle. Now, both of those are fairly minor charges. He should have gone to court, received a fine, and been on his merry way. But that's not how it all ended up going down. When Brandon raised his hand in court to be sworn in, a packet of cocaine fell out of his pocket. Why you would take drugs to court with you is beyond me. Instead of going home with a fine, Brandon got 10 days in jail for contempt of court and was facing charges for possession of cocaine, a charge that could potentially get him 12 years in jail. This next article is just as short as the last one, but it really cracked me up. This was printed in the Gallup Independent out of Gallup, New Mexico on June 6, 1944. As you know from my other podcast episodes, newspapers used to print everything. And I really do mean everything in the newspapers. This was before the days of the internet and social media. It was even before the days of daily news programs. Any news people got came from gossipy neighbors or the local newspaper. This article's headline says, Trash Can Shows Up on Cole Avenue. And yes, it's as minor of an event as the newspaper makes it sound, although it was apparently a big deal to the people of Gallup, New Mexico. Since it's short, I'll just read you the entire article. It says, Something unique in Gallup, a sidewalk trash can, showed up this week in front of La Fonda Café. Inspired by Major George Bovany's company to enlist the cooperation of business houses in keeping the street of the city clean, the cafe owners located the trash can and installed it in front of the place on Cole Avenue. The mayor recently has concentrated his efforts in keeping the streets free from litter and commended the cafe for their cooperation. Who knew something so simple as a garbage can could earn you a place in history. My next story comes from the Daily Evening Herald out of Stockton, California. This article was printed on May 30th, 1868. Now, this is another instance of me finding a story that I wanted to share on a regular full episode of the podcast, but I just couldn't find enough information. It's understandable, though, since this article was printed more than 150 years ago. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not sure how much of this article is true and how much is, shall we say, exaggerated. I could only find this story in one newspaper on one day, and it's not even the newspaper the article is about. This headline says, Perils of Editing a Frontier Newspaper. According to the reporter, the editor of the Owahi Avalanche, a newspaper based in Idaho, told them this story. Keep in mind that Idaho wouldn't officially become a state for more than 20 years, so it was still very much considered frontier land. The editor wrote that in a previous issue of the newspaper, the paper called out a man named Captain Prescott for being a ruffian. They also named Al Cage as being a gorilla. Now, there's no indication of what those men did to earn those titles and whether or not they were called for. But the editor did write that they wrote about the men for justice for themselves and for all of the community, whatever that means. Well, after that newspaper went to print, the editor and his staff were sitting in the newspaper office 
minding their own business and trying to come up with more stories to write about, when the two villains, Captain Prescott and Al Cage, came in together. And yes, villains is the word he used. Anyway, the two men arrived at the newspaper office, and one of them was wielding a hatchet, while the other had a large knife. The men tried to attack the editor and his staff, and they determined that their only choice was to fight or die. They grabbed a two-foot-long knife that was usually used to cut the newspapers after they were printed and began to fight back. Both of the assailants were bleeding profusely when they decided to give up and beg for mercy. The editor wrote, quote, We spared their worthless lives and told them to dust. They got up and dusted. We take the occasion to state that if they or anyone else attack us with the intention of doing bodily harm, we will shoot them dead in their tracks or cut them from ear to ear. And those are the final words of that article. Like I said, I don't know how true the story is or if it's completely fictitious, but apparently it took a lot of guts to be the editor of a frontier newspaper. The next article I have for you today comes from the Jackson's Hole Courier out of Wyoming. This article was printed on the 14th of February, 1929, and it tells of an incident that happened in Hondo, Texas. The headline says, Fight over milk costs lives of three men. If you've been following this podcast for very long, you know that there's no way I'd pass up the chance to read an article with that headline. The article is another small one, just one short paragraph, but it sums up the incident nicely. A man by the name of El Barrientes, owner of a store, and his two sons, Joe and Alfonso, worked with him in that store. One day, the father and his two sons were hard at work in the store when another man, Louis Arcos, came in. Louis had a quart of milk with him, a quart of milk that he'd purchased in the Barrientes' store. He claimed it was spoiled. The article doesn't say how long before the incident that he purchased the milk, but apparently he was extremely angry about its quality. For whatever reason, the Barrientises refused to replace the quart of milk. Rather than walk away, Lewis got even angrier. He pulled out a gun and shot the father and both of his sons. All three men died from their injuries. Then Lewis turned himself into the sheriff. The headline says that three men lost their lives in the incident, but I assume Lewis went to jail for a very long time and maybe even received the death penalty. So, I think it's safe to say that it was actually four men that lost their lives over something as stupid as a quart of milk. And finally, I have one more story to share with you today. This article comes from the Santa Maria Times out of Santa Maria, California. On June 14th, 1949. The headline says, Scientist says gigantic atom war may have killed moon life. Yes, this is going to be a funny theory. And before I start, keep in mind that this is 1949. The United States was still 20 years away from actually going to the moon. Anyway, a young researcher and director of the Reaction Research Society named Arthur Lewis Jockwell II wanted to know why they hadn't been able to discover life on the moon yet. He wanted to know why there weren't people living there. Like many other scientists of the time, it was believed that life existed in other places in the solar system, so why not the moon? So, 
Arthur studied and researched, and he came up with a very unique theory. He believed that since the moon was smaller in size than the Earth, the moon was able to cool off faster. And after all, there was evidence that the moon once had a good supply of air and water. Since it cooled off faster, the people living on the moon were able to evolve at a quicker pace, and that included getting a head start on their atomic research. Arthur believed that nobody lived on the moon because they'd had a big nuclear war and killed each other off. The moon's atmosphere was then burned off in a chain reaction from the nuclear explosion. Everyone knew there were craters on the moon, and can you guess how Arthur believed they were formed? Yep, he thought they were craters from where the nuclear bombs had gone off. He admitted that some of the craters were obviously formed by volcanoes, but those volcanoes could have been set off by nuclear explosions. Arthur believed his theories were completely reasonable. The newspaper reached out to the California Institute of Technology that at the time had the best telescope in the world with which to see the moon, so that they could get that institute's opinion on Arthur's theory. Their response was that it was so silly and fantastical, it wasn't worth their time responding. Friends, thanks for listening to all of these random clippings today. I hope you were as entertained by them as I was. Join me again this coming Monday for a full episode. It'll be a date that many of you will remember, and it will be about a person loved by the whole world. Talk to you later.